0: Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action and when you use the link you're supporting
1: all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech.
0: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On the show today, Jim Al-Khalili, the physicist who makes science look easy. He'll be discussing what we can learn from academia and how we can use it to live a bit smarter in our everyday lives. Professor Jim Al-Khalili is a theoretical physicist whose work is dedicated not only to the complex equations and scientific revelations found in a lab, but also to making it all a bit more understandable to those of us who aren't quite as well qualified as Jim. As a broadcaster, he's perhaps best known as the voice of BBC Radio 4's The Life Scientific, and he holds the position of Distinguished Chair in Physics as well as University Chair in Public Engagement at the University of Surrey. He's also the author of several books, the latest of which is The Joy of Science. The book offers eight core scientific principles that can be applied to everyday life. He recently spoke to The Sunday Times' Rosamund Irwin all about it. Here's Rosamund with more.
1: Welcome to Intelligence Squared, Jim.
2: Hi, Rosamund. Pleased to be here.
1: Where I'd like to start is a cave, specifically Plato's made-up cave. And I'd love you to tell us this allegory and what it means and tells us about science.
2: Yes, yeah, so this is one of the, the lessons, I guess, in in, in uh, the joy of science. Lots of people have, have written about Plato's allegory of the cave, given that it's more than 2,000 years old. For Plato, it was to, to show the distinction between ignorance and enlightenment. The story is that you imagine prisoners trapped in a cave, chained to the ground, so that they can't look around them and see what else is happening. All they can see is in front of them. And what they see is shadows on the cave wall in front of them. These shadows are made by people carrying objects through the cave behind them, They can't see the people. They can't see the objects. All they can see are the shadows. Those people might be talking or chanting or there are sounds. They imagine because of the echoes of the cave that those sounds are coming from the shadows themselves. So for these prisoners who've been there all their lives, I know it's not a very realistic scenario, but uh, there you have it. The, the 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 shadow the 2 non-dimensional shadows is their entire reality. They're not aware of anything beyond those shadows. Now imagine one day one of those prisoners is released and taken out out of the cave into the into the air to to the real world. This prisoner will suddenly see a, a much richer three-dimensional reality. He learns that shadows are simply where solid objects are, are blocking light from from passing through them he realizes that this richer reality is, is, is closer to you know, the absolute truth of what is out there, what is real. Now, if he were to go back and tell his, his, the, the other prisoners still chained up, there's this deeper reality, greater, more richer reality, they would think he's crazy, because for them, the shadows are everything. And it's really a, a lesson in showing that what we might, might think is our entire reality may not be the whole truth. Through enlightenment, through learning about how the world is, we can gain a deeper understanding of what's there. Now, it may be our real world is is not the full entire reality. Maybe, you know, who knows? We're living in a simulation ourselves, maybe like in the Matrix. But Plato's cave tells us that if we're chained by ignorance, we might see a very limited reality. That unchained by, by gaining knowledge about the world, we see this deeper, richer world.
1: Do you think a lot of people are intimidated by big scientific ideas and that they're a bit scared of science?
2: Yes, I think, and and, and it's a cultural thing. A lot of kids at school, maybe because their teachers themselves are, are, are... you know, the non-science teachers. I'm not saying the teachers who teach them science. But there is something in our culture that, that that suggests that somehow science is difficult, that it is frustrating, boring, that our brains aren't wired to understand it. So we say, oh no, don't blind me with maths, don't blind me with science, in a way that we wouldn't say about music or sport or politics, where we all very readily have opinions. So I think science doesn't mean This is something that's the reserve of just a select few. Clearly, if you want to be a quantum physicist, then it takes years of study. But lots of things take years of training and study. You know, you can't suddenly fly a plane or or become a dentist or a plumber or a concert pianist. Science, you know, when people say, oh, you scientists, you're so clever. Well, it's quite flattering, but actually I'm no cleverer than anyone else. I've just spent my life thinking about some of these ideas and become an expert in them. Science, there is difficult science, but science is so broad, there's also very simple science. And my job as a communicator is to get across the, the wonders, the beauties of, 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 of the world that we've gained through the scientific method. That doesn't have to be complicated or difficult.
1: It's interesting you talk about the beauty of the world because lots of people think that science sort of removes the magic uh, mm. From the world, and this is something you really push back against in the book. But why is that something you disagree with so strongly?
2: It's it certainly, I mean, when I the, the title of the book, the Joy of Science, I'm celebrating the, the the wonder of of how we've gained a knowledge and understanding of the world. A lot of people, for example, think that science is a collection of facts, and you have to know lots of stuff. No, that's called knowledge. And we can gain knowledge through all sorts of different ways, through art and culture and literature and and debates and discussion and and reading books and learning from other people, from life experience. But if you want to know how the world is, then science gives us a big advantage because science is a process. It's a process whereby we can gather understanding about the world. And Yes. A lot of people seem to think that science is somehow, you know, that we all, we all like Mr. Spock, you know, it's rational, hard logic, and it removes the magic and mystery. Nothing could be further from the truth. Science adds to the wonder of the world. And lots of people have written about this, you know, people who think about uh, physicists like Richard Feynman or Carl Sagan, or indeed um, Richard Dawkins. Science only adds to our understanding. I use in the book, I start the book off by talking about the rainbow. Now the poet Keats, accuses Newton of destroying the magic of the rainbow because he reduces it to its prismatic colors that somehow, you know, Newton with a prism and learns about how light is made up of the different colors. Well, learning about how the rainbow is formed isn't about learning hard facts and maths and trigonometry and and optics. We can also learn that, for example, uh, a rainbow, if you look at a rainbow. You're seeing your own unique rainbow. A person standing next to you isn't seeing the same rainbow as you because of the way the light is sent back to us, broken up into different colours from each raindrop. So you have to be in one location to see one rainbow. So that doesn't make the rainbow less beautiful, less awe-inspiring to know a little bit about it. So science adds to the wonder through understanding and enlightenment. It doesn't remove that mystery and wonder.
1: One of the things I found really interesting is that you have parents who were very religious or who came from very religious backgrounds, but you sort of reject that and are drawn to the science much more. What, what was it in your childhood or in, in your formative years that took you on that path and rather away from your parents' uh, ideas of the world in that regard?
2: Yes, well I mean to say that my, my mother was a was a devout Christian, but my father is a Muslim, particularly religious. Uh, we weren't. We so we didn't grow up in a household where religious religion was practiced, particularly given that we had you know different worldviews from Islam and, and Christianity. In, in many ways, I think lots of scientists move away from religion or moving move away from wanting requiring some supernatural answer to how the world is the way it is. We look for rational. Uh, explanations that we can understand. For me, I guess it was partly falling between two stools at some point, you know, they, they can't both be right. And, um, and I, I just felt that I wanted to be able to understand the world without getting to the point where we said, well, we don't know why that is. God made it that way. No, I want to know why. And I think a lot of scientists feel that way. We, we want to find a rational explanation that doesn't require the intervention of a supernatural power or divine creator. So I'm um, probably not unusual from from many other scientists.
1: Did you plan this book before the pandemic because obviously COVID uh, and and the last 2 years have given us a view of how science really can help us uh, in a rather profound way? Or did it come into being a bit during the pandemic?
0: It
2: it actually came into being before. Uh, I mean, now in hindsight, I can see how valuable a book like this is. And in fact, there are a number of other books coming out at the moment as well, talking about rationalism, bemoaning the fact that society is bombarded with information and we don't know how to discriminate between Um, information from misinformation or disinformation. In a sense, my previous book, The World According to Physics, the last chapter in that book, I I do talk about the scientific method and why that way of gaining knowledge about the world could be useful. And from that last chapter, I decided there's there's a whole book to talk about here. Of course, writing it then during the first Stage of the pandemic, I began to appreciate just how important it is that wider society doesn't just learn science. Yes, we need a scientifically literate society because you know people need to know the, the benefits of vaccines or, or, or wearing a face mask or indeed you know whether to floss or not or whether to recycle your <laughs> your waste. Uh, you know, a, a scientific literate society can make better decisions and face up to the challenges that that, that, that we have. You know, climate change, for example, is, is a big one. But also what became uh, clear is that people need to understand how science works. And as you say, that's exactly what seems to have happened very much over the course of the pandemic. But it's not only scientists who are in the spotlight, the epidemiologists and the vaccinologists and so on. But the way we learn, the fact that we said at the beginning of the pandemic, wash your hands and you know, sing happy birthday twice through, and that's it. You protect yourself from the virus. Then with more data, more evidence, we realize actually the virus is mostly airborne. So it's much more important to, to have ventilated rooms, to, to social distancing and so on. So in, in science, you know, we learn as we go. And, and I think the wider public, is, this is something they, they are having to learn that it's okay to change your mind in 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 science, so the book has become very timely, i guess in in today's world, particularly within a polarization of ideological opinions on social media, for example. It was almost as though I could see that this, there was a need for this book. It's just become increasingly vital, I think, post-pandemic.
1: But of course, one of the other themes of the pandemic that has been talked about a lot in the media is misinformation, all of the misinformation around how to treat COVID, around you know, how dangerous it is. Why do you think, since your book is so rooted in, in asking us to take a more scientific approach... Why do you think some people shy away from that so much and go the other extreme? You know, we've had a lot of people wanting to kind of ignore the science and, uh, you know, and put about uh, information that isn't true.
2: Well, I think for a lot of people, I mean, talking about, let, let's say, conspiracy theorists, they believe they are thinking scientifically. A conspiracy theorist will say, look, I'm curious. I'm being critical of of a pervading view. I'm looking for evidence to support my hypothesis. I'm being rational. They're doing everything that they would argue that the scientific process, the scientific method tells us to do. The, the difference is, I mean, and, and lots of people are think exploring why is it that people will buy into some of these ideas that are unscientific. And it could be driven by ideology. It could be because the advice they're given, the, the proper scientific advice is coming from a source that is been ta- has been telling them other things they, they disagree with. So they, they, they lose trust in that source and therefore anything that source tells them, they're not going to believe. That's fake news or or misinformation. But the distinction between a scientific approach, say a scientific theory and a conspiracy theory, is that in science, we change our minds in the light of new evidence. You ask a conspiracy theorist, what would it take to persuade you that you are wrong? Whether it's about 5G masks that that can spread viruses or whether the earth is flat or, or whatever, or the vaccination somehow Im- embeds some microchip created by Bill Gates, <laughs> you know, it's a, so it's for mind control or whatever. What would it ta- What evidence would it take to persuade you that you are wrong? And they would have to say nothing would. By definition, a conspiracy theorist, the so people who buy into unscientific ideas or wrong ideas are so persuaded they're right that it becomes a matter of belief, a matter of faith, which is the antithesis of science. Yes, in science, we believe a theory is right, but we are also prepared to say, right, in the light of new evidence, it's not washing your hands that that will stop you from catching COVID. We've learned that actually there are other factors that are more important, and that's fine. In science, it's okay to admit you're wrong. It's okay to change your mind. And I think that's what we have to get across to people who have unscientific views is to explain the, the importance of data, the importance of evidence, the importance of adjusting and going against your biases and ideological beliefs, because they may not be right.
1: Is there any point, given that you say that they won't change their mind, is there any point in arguing with a conspiracy theorist? <sighs>
2: It, it depends what the conspiracy is. I think you know, if, if someone truly believes the earth is flat or truly believes we, we didn't go to the moon or the aliens built the pyramids or whatever, I sort of find that quite quaint. I don't mean this in, a <laughs> in, in in the sense that it's harmless. And it's fine if you want, in the same way that if you believe there are fairies at the bottom of your garden, fine. Or indeed, if you have a religious faith that's very, very important to you, you are free to, to believe what you want to believe. But if you're promoting ideas that can be to the detriment of wider society, like trying to persuade people not to get vaccinated, then we do need to engage. And certainly it makes no uh, it, it really is of no use to shout at a conspiracy theorist or tell them they're stupid or they're being unscientific because they say they feel the same way about you. They will say you are misguided, you are the person that's buying into some false narrative. So I think the way to do it is sort of what I talk about in the book, is to show that we examine our own biases. I believe that humankind is changing the Earth's climate to the detriment of future generations. I would love to be wrong. I would hope, I would love to be proven that actually climate change isn't happening. The, The same can't be said, it's not symmetrical, the same can't be said for climate change deniers they don't hope to be wrong. They are persuaded 100% in what they're they're thinking. So getting across the idea that we should examine the evidence, examine our own beliefs. I'll tell a a conspiracy theorist, look, I have a theory, this is why I believe it's true, but if you could persuade me otherwise, I will change my, my mind. So getting people to examine where they get their evidence from, what information they gain is trustworthy, is probably the, the getting them to question what they believe, rather than telling them they're stupid for, for not agreeing with me.
1: How do we all question our own sort of confirmation bias, for example?
2: With difficulty, <laughs> you know, that's part of human nature. I like to hear stuff that I already agree with. And we've always done this. The world was simpler before the internet. You know, when we'd all read, you know, one particular newspaper or get our information from one source, there was no conflict because, you know, that's what I believe, and because that's that's part of my cultural background, the people I mix with, the information I, I gather. Now, with information coming at us from all directions and from opposing views, we retreat back into what we already think is true. This, this notion of confirmation bias, and so something that goes against what we believe, we tend to dismiss it and downplay it, and or say that it's it's fake or it's being pushed by someone who's you know has alter, alter, ulterior motives. And we hear something flimsy that tends to agree with what we already believe, and we elevate it to being very trustworthy evidence. In science, yes, scientists are people. We have our own biases and confirmation bias. I want my theory to be right because I want to publish a paper. I want to get promotion. I want the respect of my peers. But a bad idea in science won't last very long it, because other people have to test your theory. Does it make the correct predictions? Does it? Uh, if, you're, if you come up with experimental results, they will repeat those experiments. And if you're wrong, you're wrong, and science will move on. People will probably drag their heels and may not want their pet theory that they've studied all their lives to be wrong. But the scientific process, the scientific method, corrects for that. So I think in science we have biases, but we also know we have to question our biases. Am I really right? Is this theory correct? Is this equation right? Is my description of the world correct? Maybe I'm wrong. It's harder to do that in wider society, particularly when it comes to, you know, human affairs, because it's, it's too entangled with our culture, our beliefs, our ideological views, our politics. And it's hard to step back and, and ask our question whether what we believe is actually true. But we should try to do that always.
1: There's a particular view that's expressed a lot at the moment that uh, our perception of what is true is subjective. Is that something we're very aware of at the moment and has it ever been thus? Or is are we in a time when people are particularly inclined to challenge what other people say is true?
2: I think we've always had, you know, people have their own versions of the truth. You know, it's, it's not something new. What is different now is that that's being amplified by the Internet and social media because we are exposed to all the other truths that you know that people have and and because and social media is a powerful tool for people who want to spread their own version of the truth you know one example pre-pandemic is of course the many supporters of Donald Trump in America believed genuinely that he had won the election they created their own version of reality their own version of the truth now in 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 many walks of life there isn't Just one truth. You know, it is subjective. When it's things like moral truths, for example, you know, what we believe as a society is right or wrong, well, that changes with time, it changes with culture and so on. But when it comes to how the world is or Events that have happened or facts about the world, we can't create our own truth. You know, we have something called cultural relativism, which in in its purest sense is a good thing because it just means that, you know, we should all respect other viewpoints, other worldviews, other cultures. But when that seeps into the nature of truth itself, no, you can't create your own version of the truth. The internet, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Facebook or Twitter or whatever, or Instagram, that amplifies it. In one sense, that's democratized our voices. Everyone has a voice now, but it also means that those voices on the margins creating truths that not were not part of the consensus view, they also get louder. And so so we are aware of these alternative truths more than ever before. And that's why we, we see all this polarization of opinion on the internet and social media. And it's something we, we as a
0: society, is it, a real problem. We have to learn mm-hmm. how to deal with it. Code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV.
1: One of the uh, sort of theories you discuss in the book is is Occam's razor, which lots of listeners will know the simplest explanations are the best, but you've got your own version of it. And um, I want you to explore why it's more useful than uh, Occam's uh, very old uh, theory.
2: Yes. Uh, Sometimes Occam's razor is, is a good rule to abide by that, you know, the simplest explanation is likely to be the correct one. But it has become a bit of an issue these days because people don't like complexity or nuance. Don't baffle me with detail, and it's linked with this idea that we have, you know, our own biases and our own views, and that that, is, that, that causes these, these polarized arguments that take place ideologically online. People want a very simple narrative. It's either black or white. You are either with me or against me. There is no room for for the grey in between, which you only really appreciate if you think about an issue a little in a little more depth sometimes occam's razor isn't right sometimes things are just more complicated than we would like them to be and you know there are lots of debates we have today whether it's on antisemitism whether it's on the trans debate whether it's on politics and brexit or whatever each side of an argument passionately believes 100% that they are absolutely correct and there's no margin for saying, well, you've got a point, but the other side also has a point. Suddenly, if you're anywhere between those two extremes, you are attacked by both sides. Appreciating, it is a lesson from science that sometimes the explanations that we'd like, the simplest ones that we would prefer to be true, Aren't necessarily true, and, and a bit of digging is necessary because it turns out that an issue is actually more complex than we would like. So my version of Occam's razor isn't the the simplest is best, but the most useful is best. And sometimes we have to put in the effort to find out what is the real underlying truth, and it may not be what we want to hear because it may not be so simple and straightforward. But tough luck on us.
1: Taking you back a bit in history, though, you mentioned Copernicus around this this point in the book. And, and the interesting thing is one would have thought, looking back from today, that it was simpler to create a solar system with the sun at the center mm. because there's so many other things if the earth is at the center that don't quite seem right. But you actually explain that his solution actually wasn't very simple. Could you just um, explore that a little bit? Yeah.
2: So for for you know two millennia, it was believed by all scientists and philosophers and thinkers that the Earth was at the center of the universe and everything else revolved around us. And after all, you know that's logic. You see the sun moving across the sky. You don't, you, we don't think about the Earth spinning uh, and and being just you know knocked off the, its pedestal. So that's what was called the geocentric model. Uh, with the Earth at the center, was finally replaced by Copernicus with his heliocentric model, the sun's at the center. And that was confirmed then by, by Galileo because he's the first person to use a telescope to, 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 to see this. And now we think, well, of course, you know, the Earth is just, uh, is just another planet orbiting the sun. How simple can that be? Actually, the truth is that the Earth doesn't go in a circle, the Earth orbits the sun in an ellipse, as do the other planets. Actually, planetary motion is quite complicated. Uh, The sun isn't at the center of the universe. The sun is is just a star. It's it's where the sun is. But the sun orbits around the Milky Way. The more we learn about astronomy, the more we realize that actually the ancient Greeks version with the Earth at the center and everything else in lovely, symmetrical, concentric circles around the Earth, that's the simplest explanation, but it's wrong. uh, Copernicus pointed us in the right direction, but actually the truth of planetary motion is messy. So as we learn more, we realise actually that this subject is more complicated than we initially thought. And that's fine because it takes us closer to the truth.
1: Well, another example of complexity you mentioned is Peter Higgs. who Ah, you You asked to explain the Higgs boson in sort of 30 seconds or something and he can't. Do you think sometimes actually we want science to give us a simpler explanation than actually is possible.
2: Yes, I mean, for me as a science communicator, that's sort of my job, that's what I try to do. I try to pull out the essence of a complex scientific idea or concept and put it in plain language that a person who hasn't had the benefit of years of training can appreciate and understand at least the basics of it. And yes, Peter Higgs was a guest on the Life Scientific some years back. And I asked him, I said, you know, you're the man, right? You're the person to ask, can you explain what the Higgs boson is in 30 seconds? And he just shook his head. <laughs> so I said, OK, this is going well for a radio interview. Can you explain it if I gave you a minute? And he said, no. He said, what right would the listeners have in expecting it to 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 be under, to understand it in one minute when I spent half a century trying to get my head around it. Richard Feynman, the American physicist Nobel Prize winner, said a similar sort of thing when he, he won his Nobel Prize for a theory called quantum electrodynamics. I won't go into the details. He was asked by a journalist, can you explain in a sentence what you've won your Nobel Prize for? And he said, if I could explain what I won my Nobel Prize for, it it wouldn't be worth no Nobel Prize. You know, so sometimes things are more more complicated. Yes, as a science communicator, I try and get across the basic idea. But I, I also have to acknowledge, actually, that's not it. That's not the whole thing. If you want to know more, you need to dig a bit deeper into it. Sometimes things are just more complex.
1: And how do we go about changing our mind? So one of the things you talk about in the book is that we all need to be open to acknowledging when we're wrong and when we hold it wrong, uh, you know, mm. we, hold, we believe something that's not true. How can you be open to that? Because it strikes me that people tend, as they get older, to get more closed and more set in their ways. Do you have any advice in terms of staying open?
2: I don't know if that is actually true. I think people... Gain, well, you'd like to think people gain more wisdom as they get older. They 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 become more comfortable with the views that they've held, and they're not learning new stuff as much as we are when we're when we're younger. But a lot of, particularly what we see in societies today, holding the view that you hold when you argue against someone that you disagree with, it becomes about winning the argument. It becomes about scoring points, as though admitting that what you believe is wrong is somehow a reflection on you as a person that is seen as a weakness. You know, we see politicians never admitting a mistake or hardly ever uh, because that's seen as a weakness. And even, and it's sort of our fault as as, as a society. We don't like politicians who are weak, who who flip flop and change their minds. We like, you know, whatever you thought of Margaret Thatcher, people used to say, at least she knew what she wanted and stuck to it as though that was somehow a strength. In science, it's the opposite. In science, we test our ideas to destruction. We love to be proven wrong because that's the only way we learn something new. If we didn't change our minds in science, we'd still be believing in the geocentric model of the the universe. We would would not have learned anything new. So, admitting your mistakes, admitting that you're wrong sometimes, and changing your mind is empowering. And it's a strength in science. It's something to be celebrated. A scientist who sticks to their guns no matter what is not a good scientist. In the book, I try and get across that this sense that admitting your mistakes in the light of new evidence isn't something you should hide away and be ashamed of. Why not? Why not you know? And I try and do that. Since writing the book, I've been trying to do that more and more. If I debate something with someone, I'll acknowledge. If they say something that makes me thinking, I don't immediately shift gear or, or move the goalposts or attack them with something else or just deny what they've told me. If I think they've made a point, I will say, yeah, that's a, that, actually, that's a good point. Um, yeah, you're right about that. And, and I think wider society, I don't see why people can't learn to see the benefits of admitting when you make mistakes, because it's empowering. It's not a weakness, it's a strength.
1: Are there other ways in which you've implied, applied the scientific method in your own life beyond sort of science? Well,
2: I, I do, and particularly since, since writing the book, I mean, in the last few months, I've been thinking about, you know, what biases do I have? Why do I believe what I, what I believe? Can I be a bit more empathic to, to a viewpoint that I would disagree with? now chances you know it may be i believe what i believe because i passionately believe that's right you know i don't don't, don't question everything i have go around thinking oh i don't know if i'm right maybe you know other people uh, you know are right after all but i do try and examine my biases i do try and and see the opposing point of view or at least see that maybe i'm not absolutely right i'd like to evolve and change my my view of a particular subject in the light of new new evidence so I'd like to think that more people can do this if they were willing to. Uh, It would make for a healthier society.
1: Something else you mentioned in the book is the Dunning-Kruger effect. Could you just explain a bit about what it is to those who um, haven't come across it?
2: So Dunning and Kruger to American uh, social psychologists, the basic idea is that people who don't know much about a subject tend to be more bullish about their view. They tend to be more certain about their view than people who know more about the subject. And it, it's almost a contradiction. You know, you'd think that someone, if you're an expert in something, then you, you, you're more confident in your view. But actually, the more you know about a subject, the more you probably know where the weaknesses are in your, in your views or your arguments. If you don't know much, you're, you're, you, you don't know what you don't know. And so you're, <laughs> you're more certain that you're right. And we see that happening on, on, on social media. This is why in a debate where an issue is rather complex uh, and there are, there are many dimensions, many facets to it, it's things like the transgender debate, for example, both extremes are so adamant that they are 100% right and there's no room for debate with the other side, that the people who can see there are there's a point to be made on both sides don't want to get involved this is the dunning-kruger effect they know what they don't know they retreat from the debate leaving just i'm not saying both sides are you know uh, uh, don't know much about it i mean very often in a debate one side is actually more right than the other <laughs> and and could be almost completely right but yeah th- th- we see the dunning-kruger effect more and more these days because of social media were people who, who value opinion over evidence, who don't know much about a subject, and yet are m- more certain that they're right than the people who probably do know, but know where the gaps are in their understanding.
1: How can we ensure as an individual that we're hearing from experts? Because social media, as you say, has sort of democratized mm. these things. Anyone can have an opinion which has many merits to it. Uh, but it has the flip side that we may not hear from experts on subjects. I mean, the joke in the pandemic was everyone became an epidemiologist Mm or whatever. Um, In the same way, the plane crashes and people become experts on planes. Uh, How do we ensure we're hearing from an expert?
2: Very difficult because not everyone has the time or inclination to dig into the evidence or sources of, of information. Is this this information coming from a source that I can trust? Is it coming from an expert? Is it coming from someone who knows what they're talking about? Is it coming from someone who has a vested interest in pushing that particular view? We we don't have the time to see, you you see something on YouTube and what the, 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 the knee jerk reaction is, if it's something you agree with, it's true it's correct it's come from a reliable source if it's something you don't agree with ah oh, well that's because you know it's it's paid for by so and so or it's 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 that bunch of people who believe other things that i also disagree with we can't do it alone we can't figure out who to trust and what to trust to to filter out the the correct reliable information from the misinformation or disinformation we need to be aware that uh, that you know better civics. We need to be un, uh, aware that uh, you know there are people who are, are going to push a, a view that isn't true or isn't correct for whatever reason, ideological motive. Um, but I think we're going to have to make use of technology. And I think that's where the difficulty comes about. We already have AIs, you know, for years now that have uh, filtered out our spam emails. For example, we have AIs, you know, who know what our musical preference is. You know, hey Alexa, what do you recommend I listen to? And and oh yes, I quite like that. Or Netflix telling you you might want to watch this new series. There's a 98% match with with what you tend to like watching. That's sort of quite innocent and 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 useful for us. But we're going to need AI to also help filter out the fake news from the reliable information, the misinformation, disinformation from the, that that comes from trusted sources. The difficulty there is who, who creates that AI? Who's in control of the algorithm? You know, we see that, for example, in Russia today, the, 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 the Russian population are only fed one narrative, which is the state view. How do they dig in to find out if that's reliable or not? So it, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a problem we're going to have to, you know, and even when we develop sophisticated AIs, you know, is it who's behind it? Is it Google? Is it Facebook? Can we trust them? Do they have vested interests? Well, of course they do. They're, they're you know, they're all large corporations. So we need to have a debate, but we need to make use of AI to actually sift through the, 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 the stop us from drowning in information, being able to tell us what is, what is true and what isn't.
1: I wanted to ask, as a final question, in in your conclusion, you have this beautiful bit where you talk about the true beauty of science is that it enriches us. And then you quote Carl Sagan saying, the combined sense of relation and humility it gives us is surely spiritual. And I just wanted you to say, in what way you find science spiritual?
2: Well, not in a supernatural sense, I, th- I, sh- I should make clear, but I s- it is... Uplifting. It is something to be celebrated. You know, throughout the book, I tend to. I'm talking about science. You know, we have to have a scientifically literate society. We have to learn from the methods of science to have a rational approach to life. But also, science is something to be celebrated, and and it's it's wonderful that we've gained so much knowledge about the world through the scientific method. So science being spiritual, I just, for me, well, I can give you one example. I mean, I remember as a student being taught about electromagnetic theory. I won't go into the details, but basically the lecturer was writing equations on a blackboard. Back then it was blackboards, not whiteboards. And he starts off with equations that describe electric fields and magnetic fields. And he goes through the algebra and arrives at another equation in which out pops the speed of light. And for me the idea that light is an electromagnetic wave that just comes through the mathematics. I remember a shiver going down my spine as I I learned. to. So that a bit of maths about electric and magnetic fields was to me, a spiritual experience in that sense of, Oh, (laughs) how brilliant, how brilliant that we can learn how the world is by using our brains, using rational arguments and mathematics and thinking these things through. And that's something to be celebrated. And I think not everyone's going to get a spiritual experience by looking at an algebraic equation, but there are other ways we can can celebrate what we've learnt through the scientific process.
1: I think that's a lovely place to end. Thank you, Jim. My pleasure. Jim Al-Khalili's book is The Joy of Science, out now from Princeton University Press. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. I'm Rosamund Irwin, and thanks for listening.